there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. You may remember, and you may not, remember the story in Greek mythology about Polyphemus, Polyphemus and Ulysses. Okay, well, by the blank looks on your faces, I see that I need to make it a little more generic. Ulysses and the Cyclops, okay? Well, you have one nodding head, and the rest of you are... Didn't see the movie, right? Okay, <laughs> I understand. You know, it's great to be an American. You find everything out through the movies, so you never really know anything. And you never have to bother yourself with the world or history or culture or anything like that unless it comes to you in the movies. Now, you don't look very happy about what I'm saying. Are you not very happy about Darn, it? Darn, showed. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like I realize that even saying anything at all like this wounds your self-love. You know, I get that. You know, I get that you wear your self-love like this huge hot air balloon around you. And the slightest thing that touches it goes <laughs> and makes hot air come squirting out of you. Yeah. I understand that. And I'm sorry about that, but that's life. If you want to do this work, that's got to go. And I don't know another way to have it go than to actually begin to deal with it. I don't know another way. You can do it in your imagination and say, oh, yes, I don't have any self-love. No, there's no pride and vanity in me. But you've been doing that your whole life, and it hasn't really gotten you anywhere. And if someone even walks by your self-love and a breeze touches it, you're all offended and hurt, and that person is mean and horrible. Come on. Sooner or later, you're either going to be dealt with or you're just going to have to resign yourself to the fact that you don't want to work. You do not want to develop. You want to coddle yourself. You want to protect yourself. Your self-love, meaning. Anyway, back to the story of Ulysses and Polyphemus, the Cyclops. How the story goes is Ulysses landed on this, with his men, landed on this island. They needed to replenish their supplies. They were coming back from the war in Troy, where they'd been victorious. And they needed to resupply their ships. So they went to this island and found it. There were sheep, there were vegetables, there were things there. There was water. So they found a cave and they went into the cave and they found all kinds of things, cheeses and milks and all kinds of things in there that had been stored. So they thought, well, this is great. You know, we'll be able to trade with the people here. Then in comes Polyphemus, the Cyclops. Who, the Cyclops are giant. They're huge and they have one huge eye in the center of their forehead. And he comes in, and he drives his sheep in. So he's going to milk the ewes, he's, you know, do whatever he does, because so, they're shepherds. Now, he rolls this huge stone in front of the door so that the sheep won't be able to get back out. He doesn't know anybody's in there, but Ulysses and his men are in there. And so he milks all the ewes, and some of the milk he puts aside to make cheese, and some he puts aside for his drink. And then Ulysses speaks to him and says, well, we came as friends, and so on and so forth. And Well, the Cyclopses are known for being angry in Greek mythology. They're, they're very emotional. So the Cyclops grabs two of his men, bashes their brains out on the ground, goes whap, and like, grabs them by the feet, whacks their brains out on the ground, and eats them. And um, he's happy. You know? and so, like, okay. He has his little snack for the night. He goes to sleep. When the men are, of course, all freaked. So there's two down now. Wakes up in the morning, grabs two more, whack! Smacks their heads on the ground and eats them. So by this time, Ulysses is thinking, okay, we got to do something about this. There's not that many of us left. And this guy's a big eater. So they look around and they find that 
they've got this wine with them. They brought this wine that was given to them as a gift, and it's very strong wine. It's usually diluted. They mix it with water, a lot of water. But they bring this wine with them as a gift to trade with the people on this island so that they can get the supplies that they need. So this wine will really go a long way. They've got this big jar of it. They decide to give it to this guy. Well, they give it to him, and it's so strong he gets drunk. I mean, really drunk. Well, he's got this olive wood club that he uses. Well, while he's drunk and out passed out, the men sharpen it, stick it in the fire to harden it, and then they drive it into his eye. Before they do that, though, when Ulysses tries to talk to him to get him drunk, he wants to know his name, and he gives him his Greek name. But in Greek, the name he gives him is nobody or no one. And so then they put his eye out, and he, of course, is enraged, and he goes and he's screaming and yelling, and, and he says, nobody has hurt me, nobody has hurt me. And all the other Cyclops hear him yelling. They come running, and then they hear, nobody has hurt me, nobody has hurt me. And they go, oh, he's crazy, you know, he's drunk or something. So the men then, they grab hold of the bottom, the, the underside of the sheep. And as the sheep go running out the cave, Polyphemus, he touches the backs of the sheep, now that he's blind, to make sure that none of the men go riding out on the sheep. But Ulysses had figured this was going to happen, and so he gets all the men to hang on underneath, and they make it out, and they get away. They get to their ship. And Ulysses, being very arrogant, then says, you know, I'm Ulysses, son, son of Ithaca, and I've put out your eye, and I'm the one who did this to you, and <laughs> while he's on the ship. And, you know, the Cyclopses then throw big boulders at the ship, trying to sink it while they make their escape. So that's the story. I can see you're absolutely spellbound by it. <laughs> you can't observe yourself if you're blind. Upon hearing of this work, it's amazing to me how many people believe that they observe themselves. I get this all the time. When someone writes to me, someone will send me an email. They found the podcast and they want to know about this or they want to know about that. They didn't know anything about this, but this self-observation, what's that about? And I tell them, and they go, oh, I already observed myself. And it's why people believe they know themselves. People believe they know themselves. They believe they know what they would do. Listen to them. You tell them something. And they go, well, if that happened to me, I would blah, 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 blah. Like they actually knew what they would do. And you would do the same thing, like you actually know what you would do. Well, if that were me, I would say this, or I would do that. So people believe that they know themselves. One of the other things that is very interesting about us is we can believe something that isn't true. Have you ever believed something wasn't true? It was like I said yesterday when we were discussing something, and I said, remember the film Men in Black, when one of the guys sits down with the younger guy, Will Smith's character, and he's explaining to him what this is all about. And he says, and the guy says, well, that's just not possible. And he said, right. He said, I just, I just know it's not. And he said, right. And however many hundred years ago, we knew the world was flat, and we knew that the sun revolved around the earth, and we knew this, and we knew that. And he said, just think what we're going to know tomorrow. In other words, we can believe things that are not true. In our ignorance, we can believe anything. And what we are not convinced of is our ignorance. And there's a reason for that, and there's a way to get around that. And that is really what this work is about. And the reason I speak of self-love is because it's such a problem. Because the only way around this problem of ignorance is through self-love. We've got to get through self-love somehow. Because you've got to believe, you've got to see somehow, that you're not as wonderful as you think you are. And who wants to hear that? That's why this work will never, ever be popular. It can't be. If it is, someone has twisted it or sugared it to the point that it's now some self-help thing and it's all about building up your ego. Well, that's not what this is about. In fact, it's just the opposite. This isn't pure imagination, this whole thing of I know myself and, you know, it's not pure imagination. It's imagination that's born of ignorance, pride, and vanity. 
Ignorance, pride, and vanity form the tripod upon which imagination is based. Imagination can't stand in the light of knowledge. It can't stand. So you've got to have ignorance, and then you've got to have pride, and you've got to have vanity so that it protects the ignorance. Can you see that? If you already know, then you're not going to look. If you're already proud about what you know, and you're already vain about what you know, and remember, vanity is chasing after nothing. It's emptiness. So it is a belief in emptiness. It's a belief that emptiness is something. So you've got these empty pictures of yourselves and you believe that they're true. That's vanity. Pride, on the other hand, is something a little bit different. And the truth is people do observe themselves. And this is why we have such trouble with this. You do observe yourself. It's also true that people don't observe themselves properly. When I say properly, I mean according to what the work says to observe. They can't. They have a tripod stuck in their eye, rendering them internally blind. And that tripod, remember, is ignorance, pride, and vanity. With that stuck in your eye, you cannot see anything internally. To see, to observe oneself properly, according to esoteric teachings, one must gradually form an observing eye to replace the eye of ignorance, pride, and vanity with which we now see ourselves. We do see ourselves through ignorance, of ourselves, we see ourselves in imagination through pride and vanity. So when you have ignorance, pride, and vanity, you can have imagination. When you can have imagination, you have satisfied every center, as this work says. Imagination satisfies every center for us. We're completely satisfied with imagination. We don't really need anything else. This work defines specific areas in which we are to observe in a very selective manner. This may be the most difficult thing that we as human beings ever do out of trigonometry and uh, calculus or whatever else we're studying, physics. This may be one of the difficult things we ever apply ourselves to. This whole idea that there are specific areas that we have to observe in a very selective manner. It's actually almost scientific. It is scientific. Where you need to be an objective observer without emotion, strictly objective about things. And this is not something that we generally apply to ourselves. We can apply it to science. Some people can. Some people are never going to be good scientists because they allow their emotions to run them, because they allow their emotions to get in the way, because they let sentiment get in the way. A good scientist is almost like a machine. And we're not very mechanical when it comes to our ideas about ourselves. We're mechanical about everything else, but when it comes to our ideas about ourselves, we're full of romance and sentimentality and emotion. It's self-emotion. It's based on self-love. And we're so full of that that there's not room for anything else. We've talked about that before, and I'm sure we'll talk about that again, but today is not the day for that. As we are, we observe ourselves with a random selectivity governed by pride and vanity. And that random selectivity governed by pride and vanity reinforces our pictures of ourselves, maintaining the status quo. It is impossible to change and maintain the status quo. In other words, you're going to stay the same. You can't change and stay the same. It's impossible. Yet, because of imagination and ignorance, we think, we believe that we can stay the same and change. We think we can keep the things that we like about ourselves and just change the things that we don't like about ourselves. And then we'll be changed, we'll be transformed. This is not the case. Self-development transformation is not possible if we allow pride and vanity to select what we get to observe and what we overlook. If we get to choose based on what we know, 
based on ignorance, pride, and vanity. If we get to choose what to observe, we will never observe what needs to be observed to enter into this state of self-development, expanding consciousness, expanding awareness, and transformation. We'll never really get through the process if we get to choose what we're going to observe. Prometheus stole fire from Zeus and gave it to man. Zeus punished him by having him chained to a rock where a great eagle came and ate his liver every day. And then the punishment was it grew back the next day and the eagle showed up again to eat his liver the next day. So it was rinse and repeat day after day. So that was his punishment for stealing fire from Zeus and giving it to man. It's interesting that the liver is responsible for cleansing, especially of the qi responsible for emotions in Chinese medicine. So liver dysfunction produces anger, negative emotions, headaches, blurry vision. Now, it's true, all these stories are old. It's Greek mythology, and it's old, and old Chinese medicine goes back 5,000 years, and meditation technique of Buddha goes back 2,500 years. But all of these things all have this common thread, and if you're paying any kind of attention, you can see that the common thread is called the truth. There's truth in all of this, and there's so much more to these things than we know because we don't observe them properly. We don't look at them properly. We look at them in the same way we look at ourselves, in a very surface way. Well, does my hair look good? Do I have anything on my face? Do I look okay? And out the door we go. We look at the front, we don't look at the back. But what has a front has a back, and we need to look at the back too. But we don't do that. So the rage that people express when they're told that they don't observe themselves is enormous, whether it's expressed externally or not. I've had people get so angry, it's unbelievable. But you don't observe yourself. And, of course, it's not just at that. It's at pointing something out that they cannot see about themselves. And their pride and their vanity and their self-love has protected that for years. In fact, not only protected it, but has given it a place of honor, has held it up as a virtue. So we take the very thing about ourselves that is hindering us, and pride and vanity, the imaginary eye, makes it a virtue so that it is protected and covered at all costs, so that it's never wounded. In other words, if you had an ingrown nail on your thumb and it was all infected and swollen, you wouldn't do things with that thumb. You would protect it. You would make sure that nothing bumped it because of the pain. You would make sure that nothing came near it. If you had a corn on your toe, I've seen people cut their shoes out, cut a place out of their shoe so that it didn't rub against the corn or against the bad spot on their toe. Why? Because of the pain involved. We don't want to deal with this pain. And the pain that comes from wounded self-love is worse than anything that can happen physically. And people go crazy behind this. The work endlessly teaches, and we endlessly do not understand, that we must observe ourselves along the lines that the work teaches. Pride and vanity forbid this. We forget it, making self-observation useless. What is it that we forget? We forget that self-observation has to be done along the lines that the work teaches, not just willy-nilly, whatever we think. Oh, I think I'll observe this today. Oh, look, I observed that. Oh, well, I was on my way to school, and I observed that I was looking at this house and really thinking, oh, I'd like to live in a house like that. I observed that. And I observed that, I observed that almost every time I go by that house. At that same thought, isn't that interesting? That same eye comes up. I've observed that. That is not self-observation according to what this work teaches. That is not what we're supposed to be observing. But that is, that is the kind of self-observation that we do.
I observe that when I have a picnic planned and it rains, I observe that it really upsets me and I get depressed and angry. Well, that's great. That's not what this work tells you to observe. Well, then what does the work tell us to observe? I don't know. You've been here all these years. What does the work tell you to observe? This is endlessly taught and endlessly not understood. This is why we repeat this so often. Because if it's not repeated all the time, we will forget it. And forgetting it, we then do not observe ourselves properly. We go back to useless self-observation. And it's useless in a work sense, but it's very useful for the false personality because it builds the false personality, because it builds pride and vanity and keeps us in ignorance, keeps us blind to anything that we could actually see about ourselves that would help in our self-development and transformative process. Unless we observe certain things in ourselves and separate from them, we can't touch higher centers. And higher centers can't touch us. We can't receive their influence. We won't get what they're beaming at us. This work is designed to make us aware of and separate from that which blocks us from getting in touch with what we were created to be. You were created to be a self-developing organism. You were created to continue your development and complete it. That's what you were for. That's your meaning. That's your purpose. There is something that can guide you in doing that. But we are blocked. That something is blocked for us. We can't get to it. And what blocks it is what the work says we need to observe. We've got to see what blocks it before anything can be done. But we waste our time in this useless self-observation that doesn't really ever show us what needs to be removed, what is blocking the way. Let's think about it. What are you observing? So Steve says, well, I'm observing that what the work teaches me to observe, that I'm not one. Well, that's pretty general, isn't it? Pretty vague. So I'm observing that I'm not one and I'm separating from that. Well, how's that working out? Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't work out. In other words, we don't know. More often than not, what we observe is trivia. I observe I locked the keys in the car. I observe I do that when I'm stressed. I observed that I got to work late. I observed, you know, I do that three times a week. I get to work late. I observed that I didn't like the way he or she talked to me. I observe that really makes me angry. That person really makes me angry. Or we observe basically the same thing we observed last year and the year before, last week and the week before. Does this sound familiar? This has nothing to do with self-observation in the work sense. We have to observe that we're asleep and mechanical. But you don't believe you're asleep or mechanical. You believe that you believe that you know you're asleep and mechanical. But how many times a day do you wake up realizing you were absolutely out like a light and you didn't know it? And then you go back to sleep and you don't even know when you went back to sleep. And we won't even talk about mechanical. That's just too obvious. When we really observe this, it slowly dawns on us that we don't remember ourselves. We have to become convinced of this. We have to become absolutely convinced that we don't remember ourselves. This is so obnoxious to us that many people fight against it or actually leave the work when they're told that they're mechanical and they don't remember themselves. I remember someone who was writing to me and thought the sun rose on one side of me and set on the other until I suggested that there was something she was missing. And I suggested it in a podcast. And even though I never really gave her name, I didn't give her name in the podcast, I never heard from her again. She was beyond, beyond furious. And she left. That was it. It was over. Why? Because her self-love had been wounded. That's why. And the worst self-love there is is work self-love. It's when your self-love is based on 
I do the work. I studied with someone who studied directly with Gurdjieff. This is supposed to have, this name-dropping crap is supposed to have some effect on something. Somehow it's supposed to mean something. Like, well, I wore Gurdjieff's overcoat while I studied the work, and I dug a hole in the ground and filled it with dirt after a direct student of Gurdjieff was my teacher, and he made me do that five times while wearing Gurdjieff's overcoat and growing my mustaches out and shaving my head. Well, that's great. So that's your claim to fame. So that's your work. Well, what's the difference between that and Pharisaism? I don't see any difference. I don't see any difference between name-dropping and Pharisaism. I don't see any difference between, how dare you tell me, I've done this. What have you done? You don't know Gurdjieff, and you didn't know any of his students, and you didn't study under this man, and you don't know this, and you don't know that. What's that got to do with anything? This work did not originate with Gurdjieff. Esoteric teachings did not originate with any man that we know, or that we will ever know, or that we know of. It's way older than that, and it comes from a source way beyond people. Way, way, way beyond people. And if you can't get that through your head, then what are you doing here? Hopefully trying to get it through your head. But you can't get it through your head as long as you've got this brick wall of pride keeping it intact. The first area to observe consciously, selectively, according to the work, is that we're asleep, we lack a center of gravity, and we are thereby controlled by outer events, swinging between yes and no, likes and dislikes, Love, hate, in all things. In all things. So the first area to consciously, selectively observe in is this area that we're asleep, we lack our center of gravity. In other words, we have no stability. We can't make it through the events of life without swinging back and forth. Yes, no, likes, dislikes, love, hate. I want, I don't want. We can't make it through the events in a day without that. That's the first thing to observe. Find that out about yourself. Find out about yourself that you wobble through everything on this pendulum. That basically you're insane. You have no center of gravity. You're completely asleep when it comes to the events in life acting on you. You don't know what's acting on you. You think you're doing it. This chief realization is difficult for us, but it marks the beginning of this reversal that has to take place in us. A long, gradual process for which there is no shortcut. What? No shortcut? By Gurdjieff's mustache, how could there be no shortcut? I'm wearing his super overcoat. Uh, I'm walking in his shoes. I have his direct student, was my teacher. There's no shortcut. That doesn't get you there any faster. It doesn't help you observe any better. It doesn't do anything for you. This is self-development. Gurdjieff's overcoat, his mustache, his hat, his shoes, none of it are going to help you. None of the relics, a piece of the cross... A piece of the car that Gurdjieff got in that accident in. None of this. None of this is going to help you. Superstition is not what this work is about. It doesn't mean you can't have respect for a person who did something. You can, but you don't have to be an idiot about it. Or maybe you do. And if you are an idiot about it, okay, then start there. Start where you are. Where to begin? A great area in which we may observe is identification. They're like fields that you can go work in. You know, it's like Jesus said, well, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're white unto harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send more workers. We're in the same place, exact same place. This little tiny group in Macedonia that basically was established around podcasts and I went and visited, you know, and worked with for a month or so. This little tiny group, they want people to work with. 
but no one's interested in the work. Nobody wants to work. They're not even sure they want to work, but they know they have to because this kind of catches you like, I will make you fishers of men. And once you're in the net, you get hauled in and you're stuck in it. It's like then you realize you have to work. You've seen too much to be able to go back. You try to go back, but you can't go back. So one of these great fields or one of these great areas to work in is identification. We're always identified with everything. Okay, this is what the work says. We're always identified with everything. And yet last week I got a question about, do you identify with this or do you identify with that? It's like you're always identified with everything. You can be either more identified or less identified, but you cannot be not identified. If you say you're not identified, you're lying to yourself. You're in imagination. That's what this work teaches. Are you going to believe what this work teaches? Are you going to listen to what this work teaches? Are you going to continue to do it your way and find the shortcut? You receive a compliment. You feel good. You receive some criticism. You don't feel so good. Does this happen to you? That's identification. That's what that is. It's identification. If we're affected by what happens to us, are we not controlled by external events? Are we not mechanical? Are we not asleep? Isn't this exactly what the work teaches? And exactly what it teaches over and over and over again. And we have to be told repeatedly. And we don't understand endlessly. Eternally, we don't understand this. We have little or nothing internal that can resist the ups and downs of life's swinging pendulum. No center of gravity. We're asleep and we have no center of gravity. This is what the work teaches. This is what we're supposed to be observing. We remain identified with life, not distinct, not separate from it, but completely identified with it, a function of life as part of the mechanical process. This cog turns, this wheel turns with it. This gear turns with it. That's us. We are parts of the watch that is life. And we are controlled by other parts of the watch that is life. Observing yourself in the name of the work lays down a trace of self-remembering in you. In the name of the work. What does this mean? Name means nature. Nature is the basic or inherent features of something. The name of the work, and the name of the work is in the nature of the work. And the nature of the work is the basic or inherent features of it. And the basic or inherent features of this work is that it is based on consciousness. It is based on ideas that come from a more conscious place than we are in. Okay, let's just say that. Let's just leave it at that. We don't have to put any of the hocus-pocus or the special language in. It just comes from a place where beings are more conscious than we are. And so their ideas are more filled with light, more complete, more real than the ideas that we can come up with. No matter how hard we work, we do not have what it takes here to come up with what they have there. So what they do is they send from there to here. It's like light and idea care packages from beings who have the light and who care. And the problem with us is, and the problem with all care packages is, what is the big problem? Well, it's distribution. Distribution is the problem. How do you get the food to the people who are starving? You know it goes through the governments. And you know that everybody gets a piece of the pie before it ever gets to the starving people. And by the time it gets to them, if it ever gets to them at all, there's hardly anything left. That's why there are starving people. It's not because there's not enough food. It's because there's too much greed. That's the reason. This is not rocket science. But we have good intentions. I don't care. 
Your good intentions don't get the job done unless you follow through and see it done. Most of us can't do that, so we write a check to some organization. We say, they, there you go, you take care of it. Then we go on the Internet and we look and we see that organization that 80% of that check went to the people who run the organization. 10% went to getting it there and 5% went to paying bribes and 5% made it to the people who were starving or needed whatever they needed. Whatever. Of course, I'm making up these numbers. They're really a lot worse than that. Yeah. The idea is all I want you to get. Forget about the words, get the meaning. Forget about the words, get the meaning. The meaning is what's important. You need to get the meaning of this. The words are not what we're after. So observing yourself according to what this work teaches, that's what it means to observe yourself in the name of this work. If you want a trace of self-remembering laid down in yourself, you must observe yourself according to what this work teaches. Here's the rub. You have to obey the work. You must obey the work. You can't obey pride. You can't obey vanity. You can't obey your internal pictures of your rightness. See, all of those things support your rightness. They support you being right. We must learn to come from wrongness, not rightness, if we wish to develop. Now you say, oh yes, that's right. Well, let's do that. Mm -hmm. A second great field for observation is negative emotions. They're the only emotions that we have, according to the work. We refuse to believe this due to pride, vanity, and our pictures of ourselves. We think we have real emotions. And if we hear of a real emotion, then that's the one we think we have. And I'm sure you think you really love, too. I'm sure of it. Notice how when you're accused of something, you always want to justify yourself, whether you actually do justify yourself or not. That when you're accused of something, instantaneously you want to justify yourself. This is because you come from your rightness, not from your wrongness. This is because you have not properly observed yourself. If you had properly observed yourself, you would come from your wrongness. If you obeyed this work, you would come from your wrongness, not from your rightness. In fact, we could all bow down to you and say, yes, you're wrongness, yes, you're wrongness. But we can't. We have to all bow down to you now and say, yes, you're rightness, yes, you're rightness. And that's the only way you're ever happy with us, is if we're bowing down to you and say, yes, you're rightness. How annoying is it to hear someone justify himself regarding something everyone knows he did wrongly? I mean, come on. Everybody knows it. Everybody in the room has seen it. Everybody knows it. And then you have to tediously listen to this person justify themselves, come up with excuses, come up with examples, come up with reasons. That's another thing. One of the things we do is we have reasons. I was talking to somebody the other day, and, and I said, well, so-and-so said blah, 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 blah. They observed this about you at this particular point in time. And that person said, but they're not taking into consideration the stress that I was under. Okay, so let me get this straight. This little child in the street was just run over by 2008 Ford Focus, all right? But it's okay, the person's not hurt because the person who was driving the car was under a lot of stress. Well, no, that's not it. Well, then what is it? What's the point? This is what this person observed. How does your level of stress change that? Well, that's why it happened. I'm not normally like that. <laughs> okay, well, so what? We're not talking about what you're normally like. See, but this is just it. We come from our rightness, not our wrongness. And we try to defend our rightness. We try to defend our intactness. We try to defend our state so that we don't have to change it. This can never work. Can you see this can never work? Can you see we're as blind as Cyclops after he's had this hot poker jammed in his eye? And that furious, too and wanting to kill the person who put out the eye that was deceiving you. 
so that you could grow an observing eye, so that you could develop something else in its place. Until we can really see that we're negative for most of our daily life, we're not going to stop justifying ourselves. You've got to really be able to see that you are negative for most of your daily life. Most of every day of your life, you are negative. This is what the work teaches. Try and prove the work right. Instead of proving yourself right and the work wrong, try to prove the work right. Observe with the idea of proving that the work is right. Observe with the idea of finding what the work says is there instead of proving that the work is wrong. This is what I'm talking about. This reversal, this shift has to occur. And it's got to occur sometime. Why not now? Why not start it now? Why not get it now? This whole self-justifying thing, as I said, comes in several flavors. Explaining ourselves, excusing ourselves, and denial. These are just a few. We've got a whole deck of cards that we can choose from. Here you go. Pick a card, any card. We've got a whole deck of cards, 52 that we can choose from, plus two jokers. And remember, jokers are wild, so they can be anything. Unless we separate from negative emotions, we can't get help from higher centers. Observing yourself when you're internally considering is another interesting area of work. I'm not going to have time to go through all of these things, but we'll just touch on this. All internal considering is based on thinking that other people have treated you badly while you have treated them well. This blocks the way to inner development. If you think other people have treated you badly while you have treated them well, whether it's true or not has nothing to do with anything. Just the fact that you are there is what's blocking self-development. But it's true! Then you're truly blocked. Is it any better to be truly blocked than falsely blocked? You're still blocked. Whether it's a, a shackle, a gold shackle, or an iron, a rusty iron shackle and chain that's got you chained to the wall. You're still chained to the wall. It doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. doesn't matter. It's the state that it creates. That's what matters. Why can't I get this across to people? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they're coming from their rightness instead of coming from their wrongness. You've got to bite the bullet and start to come from your wrongness if you're going to obey this work, if you're going to obey esoteric teachings, if you're going to develop. This must happen. This must begin somewhere. Observe when you're lying. Self-justifying is lying. Internal considering is lying. Saying I is lying. So you have lots of things to observe. You internally consider all day long. You lie all day long. You say I all day long. Observe it. You've got all this to observe. What are you doing? Well, I just don't have anything to observe. I'm, I'm so perfect and right and wonderful. Yeah. I'm observing that I'm not one. Great. Now observe these things in your not oneness. Become conscious of what you were previously not conscious. That's what this work is about. This work is about you becoming conscious of the things that you were not conscious of before. But that's painful. Well, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. That's why people leave. When they feel the sting of the conscious shock, they either bite the bullet and stay with it or they leave. What I've found is that most leave. One way or another. They don't have to leave the room or stop listening to podcasts or stop reading the books or stop going to meetings, but they leave. And they go someplace where they're right and they're safe inside of themselves. We have all the work tools that we need in us, but we've forgotten them in our sleep. We have to awaken to get them back. Only when we allow the light of consciousness into ourselves can we begin to awaken so that we can practice separation from negative emotions and all else that blocks this internal light 
that's coming to us from higher centers that we are not getting, and we're not getting it because we have these things that are blocking it. The work spotlights, highlights, points to these things, and we refuse to look at them because we live in imagination, ignorance, pride, and vanity. Looking through that eye, ignorance, pride, and vanity, that eye has to be put out, and an observing eye has to take its place. So you go from cyclops to cyclops, from external cyclops, where you're always looking through the five senses in the outside world, to internal cyclops, where you have an observing eye that is based on the work, and that you will follow no matter what. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.